us again. Every hour, on the hour, coughing and puffing. Look, Doctor, I know science comes first. But that thing is ridiculous. For six hours straight. Every hour on the hour. afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Gordon Campbell. Coming up on today's program, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science and technology. Also joining us is Gary Marcus to talk about genes and the brain. In addition, you can find out what's in milk. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous Question of the Week, right here on Berkeley Rocks. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. And I'm Gordon Campbell. Very good. How's everyone doing this week? Very warm day today, huh? That's hot. Yeah, I guess so. My glands are finally getting a workout. Thank My skin's change. finally feeling clean. You know, it helps if you bathe oh, well, as well. <laughs> yeah, a sweat bath doesn't yeah, really do it for me. So here's something I've been wanting to ask you. Do you like it rough or do you like it smooth? Rough, and definitely. Yeah. I like smooth, but... Like, I'm not we'll sure go I with smooth, too. Uh, if you're wondering, the NIST, the National Institute of Science and Technology, now has a website where you can check the smoothness of your surface or whatever you're studying. So this is of interest to uh, people manufacturing cylinder pistons or very fine optical equipment or maybe the next generation toilet paper. <laughs> but you can send a profile of the surface that you've imaged to the website and they'll tell you how smooth it is. So they have some sort of smoothness factor? They have some profile you can compare it to and then they have some modeling software that ensures that whatever you have is really smooth. What's the criteria for declaring something as smooth? It just doesn't have very many ridges or bumps? Yeah, idea. basically that's it. Okay. They take common materials, metals or glasses that mm-hmm. have certain profiles associated with their smoothness to see if your product is smooth or not. So why would this be important other than uh, making sure your ass doesn't chafe? <laughs> <laughs> also, like you don't have so much friction in your cylinders or uh, you other don't have any micro scratches in your optical lens. As well as making sure you ask us in shape. <laughs> Some people might like friction yeah, in their I, cylinders. I, I don't guess know. so. I, I like micro scratches in my... <laughs> <laughs> So I guess if it wants to know more, they can go out to the NIST website and look for the surface calibration profiles. So how's your dating life been going? Haven't started. <laughs> Not much on the horizon. Have you ever thought about trying uh, the internet dating? That sounds no dangerous. Comment. No comment. <laughs> I heard Craigslist is very useful. No that's, cra- that's all I know. <laughs> uh, well, internet dating. Uh, apparently, if you take part of internet dating in Sweden, you might be the subject of a scientific study. It's now become a science. Can you get your smoothness <laughs> profiled on the... Uh... Isn't that what Jackie Stallone does? <laughs> get your butt profile, see how smooth it is? Uh, I think she, she can just tell that psychically. <laughs> but anyway, a group of researchers in Sweden have actually been uh, monitoring an online dating site called Pusokram. <laughs> <laughs> we're allowed to say that on the yeah, air. Yeah, well, <laughs> apparently it translates to kiss and hug, so we're smooth and rough. I don't know. <laughs> sounds a lot worse. Though. Yeah. <laughs> 
But it turns out that actually a group of researchers at Stockholm University led by Peter Holm have been gathering anonymous data from the site of about 30,000 users to see what their strategies have been in terms of how often they communicate, who they look for, what types of matches they try and find. So as uh, was published in a recent edition of Social Networks, people actually tend to expand the types of social networks that they actually try and get involved with. Whereas if people are actually dating face-to-face, they tend to date people who are like them. Rock stars date other rock stars or poor disgruntled graduate students. (laughs) (laughs) We don't have to go there. You get the idea. So (laughs) apparently they say the anonymity of internet dating has allowed people to sort of expand. So it's broken down social barriers. That's indeed what they're saying. But they're interested in this because they think that these type of analyses can identify certain types of hubs of people. Opinion leaders. Right. (laughs) Because they want to use them for either marketing or spreading political campaigns. I don't know what else those hubs would spread. (laughs) (laughs) They said these people, of course, might also be likely to pass on certain sexually transmitted diseases. (laughs) I mean, not genes. As well as sexually transmitted genes, probably. (laughs) Keep it in mind the next out on the prowl on the internet, looking for dates. Speaking of dating, do you ever feel that as a male member of the species that your function might be redundant? Every day of my life, in fact. (laughs) You mean we're going to be extinct soon? (laughs) Well, science might eventually render us obsolete. (laughs) Apparently, scientists in Japan have created an apparently healthy mouse by combining the genetic material from two egg cells. So this mouse effectively has two mothers. You know, this almost sounds like a fairy tale, except I don't know what the moral is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny that you should say that, because I actually named the mouse Kaguya Haime from a Japanese fairy tale about a moon princess that was born from a, a bamboo shoot and refused to marry. <laughs> oh, this is so getting pretty convoluted. Yeah. So apparently what they did was they rendered female DNA to have the properties of male type DNA by de-imprinting it and then combining the chromosomes from a normal female set of chromosomes and that of the more male chromosomes from the donor mother the male DNA had some uh, aspect that renders it sort of maleness. It had less imprinting, less methylation sites to silence. Oh, Apparently the male chromosomes have less imprinting than the female chromosomes. Oh, I see. So if you had two female chromosomes, typically they couldn't express because there's more of these methylations. Exactly. Like, two female chromosomes couldn't be as compatible. So this is the first yeah, documented this is, case? This is the first documented case of two female mammals being parents of normal offspring. This is a process called parthenogenesis mm. when you have no male <laughs> It makes me wish for a uterus now. <laughs> I, I'm feeling helpless. Uh, if you thought it was hard to date now. Problem. So we really have nothing to offer now, right? <laughs> Except, of course, for our sensitivity. And the smoothness. Well, maybe the smoother rest factor. Right. That's true. Do they think this will ever come down the pipeline as far as human reproductivity? Well, they don't mention about that, but I guess we'll always serve a recreational role. At least. <laughs> <laughs> maybe this is the beginning of the Clone Wars or something. <laughs> This has actually been published in a recent Nature paper. Hey, so I heard a Spider-Man 2's coming out. I'm waiting for Harry Potter versus Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> so have you ever wondered how uh, Spider-Man sticks can climb those walls so easily? I, I've adopted the uh, Army's policy of don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> <laughs> Some studies carried out on uh, real spiders have shown that it's Van der Waals forces, as opposed to, say, hydrogen bonding. There's no actual physical bonding between the surface of the spider's legs and the surface of the wall. The hairs on them have such great surface area that the Van der Waals forces are enough to uh, oh. get in the 
sticking power. Can you refresh my memory about what Van der Waals forces are again? So Van der Waals are caused by the dipole moment in the molecules. So the tip of the hair would have some dipole moment, and the surface of the wall would also have the same dipole moment. So it has an attractive force. Right. It's amazing that would be strong enough. The thing is, over short distances, right? That's the, right. That's uh, the actually, on the order of nanometers, so right. scaling factor is greater than right. two. Right. Scientists are interested because they think they can design uh, better post-it notes that are not susceptible to <laughs> water. <laughs> it's good to see research is uh, bringing us sound products for better living. That's right. Practical use. <laughs> That's right. How about feeding the hungry? You know, let's work on that one. <laughs> so I, I guess if anyone wants to know more about this, they can go to the recent edition of the Institute of Physics Journal Smart Materials and Structures. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, we'll be joined by Professor Gary Marcus, who will discuss genes and the brain. So stay tuned. to Berkeley Rocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, as we walk about our daily lives, we live under the constant perception that our behavior is guided solely by our own volition. We think, therefore we do. While most of us would certainly concede that the operations of our brain give rise to our behaviors, escaping from view is the role that our genes play in shaping the structure of our brain, and thus our behaviors. This debate of nature versus nurture in understanding complex human behaviors is ongoing, but yielding to constant scientific inquiry. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Rocks is Dr. Gary Marcus. Dr. Marcus is an associate professor of psychology at New York University and was a recipient of the 1996 Robert L. Fance Award for early contributions to cognitive development. Marcus completed his Ph.D. from MIT at the age of 23 under the direction of Steven Pinker and was a fellow at the prestigious Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences in 2002-2003. He has written more than 30 articles for journals such as Science and Nature and is the author of two books, The Algebraic Mind and The Birth of the Mind, How a Tiny Number of Genes Creates the Complexity of human thought. And he joins us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss these issues of uh, genes, brain, and behavior. Uh, Professor Marcus, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Thank you for having me. Certainly a pleasure, and you've written a very uh, fascinating book, The Birth of the Mind. 
uh, so I guess uh, at last count, uh, the Human Genome Project said we had somewhere, what, between 30 and 50,000 genes? About 30,000. 30,000 or so, right? So, uh, as you put in the uh, subtitle of your book, how can uh, such a tiny number of genes create the complexities of human thought? Well, it seems almost astounding. We have 30,000 genes and we have billions of neurons. And the question is, how do you get from point A to point B? So, so few genes and so many neurons. It seems almost impossible because most of us think of the genes as a kind of blueprint. You imagine one gene for one cell in the brain, one gene, one neuron. And if there were 30,000 genes, that would explain the first 30,000 neurons. And how would you understand all the rest? Mm. But in fact, it's better to think of a genome as a recipe. It's a kind of process that you can use just as well for a small cake or a large cake, for a tiny brain or a large brain. The genome describes a process that each individual cell follows on its own independently. Every cell is kind of like a free agent, and it's got this master library, the genome, that gives a bunch of different recipes, and the cell figures out where it is, and it picks out the right set of recipes to follow, and it's all coordinated by the individual action of all those cells. So uh, the genes can then have multiple uses, and are just not one-to-one kind of ratio. Exactly. So every cell in your brain actually makes use of maybe half of those genes. Each cell might actually depend on 15,000 genes, and each one of those genes may participate in the construction of billions of neurons. I see. It's sort of like sort of a multiplicative interaction of all these genes. Exactly. A combinatorial interaction. That's a, a key point. Are there any particular types of genes that have been sort of implicated as being very important for the development of our brain or behavior? Well, there are lots of different genes. One of the surprises is how much many of the genes that participate in building the brain help to build the rest of the body. So there are lots of just basic structural genes that guide the metabolism of any cell, and they do that in the brain. In fact, if you look at a neuron, the basic cell in the brain, it looks different from other kinds of cells because it has these long feelers that we call axons that help them connect to other neurons. But they're just a variation on the theme, a basic cellular theme for how to build any kind of cell. In fact, many of the genes that participate in, in building the brain are either directly evolved for the body itself and then just changed a little bit for the brain. There are only some genes that are really unique to the brain. A lot of them are variations on things that you'd find somewhere else. But the special part of any particular brain cell is how it communicates with other cells and how it evaluates the information that's there. And a lot of the genes are, are designed for that. What fraction of the genes that are unique to uh, specifying the brain then? Nobody really knows the answer to that. They're still working on annotating the genome. So we have this long list of DNA letters, mm -hmm. which we translate into particular genes, but then we have to figure out the functions of those genes. I think that what we're going to find is that there are many genes that are expressed only in the brain, turned on only in the brain, but they're closely related to genes that are expressed somewhere else in the body. So, for example, there's a gene called FOXP2 that you may have heard of that's very important in language, but it also has some kind of function in the lungs. It may have two different functions in two different places. Mm -hmm. I think that we'll find that that's quite common. Hmm, that's uh, quite interesting. So uh, is it like an evolution that uh, this gene already existed and then just co-opted for another purpose then? Exactly. Darwin had this wonderful phrase about descent with modification, and we usually think of that in terms of species. So this species derived from this ancestral species with some kind of change. So humans are like chimpanzees with, with some variation. Well, you can think of that same idea at the level of an individual gene. Each individual gene is descended with modification from pre-existing genes. For example, the genes that help us to see color, that build pigments in our retina, have actually varied over time. So there used to be just one version, and now there are two versions, one that descended from, uh, with modification from another, ultimately three versions, and that let us see three basic fundamental aspects of color by modifying a plan that was already there. So this multiple use of many genes then uh, would explain why, um, you know, humans and chimpanzees, are, they're quite similar in small difference, but we still have quite different cognitive capabilities. That's right. Our genomes, if you just take genetic letter by genetic letter, nucleotide by nucleotide, they're about 98.5% the same as chimpanzees. Hmm. Most of the difference is actually in which genes get turned on and when. 
You can think of every gene as having two parts. It has a recipe part that says, okay, build this particular protein. And then there's a part that says when you should build that protein and where you should build that protein. And the difference between humans and chimps isn't in the recipe part, which protein you build. We're basically made up of the same stuff as chimpanzees, but it's put together in different order. It's the part of each gene that says when and where you should build its protein that differs between us and chimps, the organization of the material. Hmm. So how has your work in uh, looking at these genetic issues then informed an understanding of our behavior? Well, I actually came to these genetic issues from the perspective of somebody studying the acquisition of language. How do children acquire their first mm-hmm. language? And what I found is that the younger that we look at, I started by looking at three-year-old children, and I eventually started looking at seven-month-old children. As we look at younger and younger children, I've just always been impressed by how much is built into the mind. It's not that we know a particular language at birth, but we're built with mechanisms that help us to learn language. And I got into this genetic stuff trying to understand how the genes can actually construct the brain. So what we're trying to understand now, what I'm trying to understand in my own lab, is how do these small numbers of genes give these complicated brain structures that give give rise to the complexities of human thought. I see. So there does seem to be some kind of uh, innate uh, structure for language. Absolutely. One question is how that itself descended with modification from the other brain structures that help mm-hmm. us to do other parts of our, our mental life. So, for example, the ability to use language depends on a memory system that was already in place in our ancestors. Mm. But maybe that memory system is reconfigured in a special way to allow us to to represent language. I see. Has language actually been sort of a relatively recent uh, adaptation in evolution, or do other organisms seem to... Um, Well, we diverged from chimpanzees six million years ago. Mm. Some people think that language actually arose only maybe 50,000, 100,000 years ago. Mm. It's quite recent from the perspective of evolution. And so what that tells you is that somehow, in small ways, a pre-existing system system was changed to give a really profound impact. I see. So what other types of behaviors then have been linked very strongly with genetic causes? Well, there, there are lots of behaviors that are tied to genes, but they're not as tied as closely as some people might think. So the popular way of thinking about genes is you have a gene for a particular trait, like mm-hmm. um, there's a wonderful cartoon that talks about a gene for delusions of stock market grandeur. <laughs> um, but we don't really have a gene for the, a delusion of stock market grandeur, but we have genes that affect all kinds of aspects of our personality. Mm-hmm. They do that by working together with other genes, and they do that by working together with the environment. So genes don't really dictate things, but they, they give us options, they give us opportunities, and they can influence us, push us a little bit in one direction or another. I see. So these, rather than dictating our, our particular types of behavior, more like our temperament or our, our inclinations. Yeah, they're, they're more likely to influence something like temperament than a particular behavior. I mean, genes build the brain, then the brain takes us uh, on a sort of day-to-day basis. Genes are too slow to make the decisions that we make on a moment-by-moment. Where's this work uh, in t- of uh, understanding the relationship between genes and, and the brain actually heading? Well, I think that there are both scientific and practical consequences. As a scientific consequence, I hope that we're eventually going to understand how, for example, the language acquisition device that, that allows us to acquire language works, how it gets wired into the brain. On a practical side, one thing is that we should better understand how to diagnose and how to treat maybe even things like language disorders or schizophrenia and so forth. Yet another possibility which I talk about at the end of the book, is that we might be able to use genes as a way to identify people that are at particular risk and then find social interventions that can help people that are most at risk. So there's a good deal of interaction with the environment that can sway even your genetic predisposition to certain types of uh, disorders then. It is a great example, which, which I actually talked about in an op-ed in the LA Times last week, which is a particular gene that causes a predisposition for violence, but only in people that are raised in abusive families. So the gene you can think of as actually giving, if you have the particular version, is giving two different strategies, one of which isn't particularly violent, the other of which is. Hmm. It's actually the environment that brings out the aggression.
So I guess we are running a little bit out of time here, but I'm curious, how did you become interested in this whole issue of the genes and the brain? And, and well, I actually started out when I was a kid trying to program computers to understand language. Hmm. Uh, I found that it was a very difficult task, far beyond uh, what I was able to do, but it pointed me towards understanding how humans un understand language. I got interested in the work of uh, Noam Chomsky, and I went to graduate school to work with Steve Pinker. And so I've been studying in my laboratory research how children acquire language, and that's what led me to want to understand the genetic contribution, because there seems to be so much built in. Certainly very fascinating work, and I want to thank you again for joining us on Berkeley Grox to discuss this very fascinating issue. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. And you were just listening to Professor Gary Marcus from New York University discussing the issues in his book, The Birth of the Mind, How a Tiny Number of Genes Creates the Complexities of Human Thought. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, you can find out what is in milk. So stay tuned. Well, what would you do with a brain if you had one? Do? Why, if I had a brain, I could... I could while away the hours, conferring with the flowers, consulting with the rain. And my head, I'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if I only had a brain. I'd unravel every riddle for any individual in trouble or in pain. With the thoughts you'd be thinking you could be another Lincoln if you only had a brain. Oh, I could tell you why the ocean's near the shore. I could think of things I never thought before. And then I'd sit and think some more. I would not be just a nothing, my head all full of stuffing, my heart all full of pain. I would dance and be merry, life would be a ding-a-dairy if I only had a brain. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, have you ever wondered what a defibrillator does? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. Ever wonder what a defibrillator does? Shock advised. The answer can be found in Everyday Science. Stand clear. Push to shock. If you've ever watched a TV hospital drama, you've no doubt seen the familiar paddles of a defibrillator applied to the chest of someone whose heart is beating erratically. But before we see how this drama plays out, let's go back a few steps into the heart itself and see what could happen that would require a jump start from a defibrillator. Here we are, in the thick muscle in the heart wall called the myocardium. Regular contractions from the myocardium send blood pulsing through the heart's chambers, then into the lungs or out to the body. But when something like heart disease causes regions of the myocardium to pulse erratically and independently of one another, the resulting uncontrolled quivering is called fibrillation. In the hands of an emergency medicine professional, the defibrillator's paddles are now quickly applied to the chest, and through these paddles come an electrical shock. This shock hits the heart, triggering the heart muscle to contract all at once and resets the heart's own pattern of electrical activity. Electrical impulses, by the way, are always present in the heart and help keep it contracting and relaxing rhythmically. It's only when they become irregular or stop altogether that it's time to call 911. 
Hope that got to the heart of it. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's National Education Program, making science make sense. Ooh, Everyday Science Lady. My heart goes into palpitations every time you come on the air. And now joining us with the answer to last week's question of the week is the Tokyo Kid. Take it away. Okay, and now here's the Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. What is in milk? Turns out the milk is a very, very complex fluid. It's an emulsion of many things, including proteins, lactose, casein, and calcium. And often, we also put vitamin A and D, and that's what milk is. All right, my friend. Thank you very much, my friend. And now it's Esteban the Spaniard with this week's question of the week. How many times, my friend, does the heart beat during a typical lifetime? If you know the answer or just think you know the answer, email us at grox at homemade.com. You're not going to win anything, but you just might have the heart of the Spaniard. And that's all for this week's edition of Break the Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Gordon Campbell. And I'm Franklin. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. And I'm Charles Lee. Stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.